Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, December 5th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. If you do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of those things soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers and testimonials and if you have any of those to share with us we would appreciate you doing so you can either give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press one on your phone i'll put a little icon of a hand by your phone number and i can then turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code or if you prefer not to do that or if you're listening through the archives you can send us an email 
You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. And you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if we get a comment or question from you, we will address that on the Internet show. And then, as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for the feedback or input. And we would... Greatly appreciate if you would do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when we know how things are landing for you and what would be of most use moving forward. We have a support group coming up tonight. Tonight is a Tuesday night, so every not every, but most Tuesdays and Thursdays, we hold support groups that create the communal space for people to learn about these tools, apply them directly, understand more deeply the underlying principles that give them their power. And if you'd like to join us or you know somebody who would, all the information you would need to join us is available at the mindshiftersacademy.org website. And it is worth noting that there are uh, two separate pages, one for the information if you're going to join us on a Tuesday night and different information if you're going to join us on a Thursday night. It's done through Zoom, and the um, group time runs from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time, so feel free to join us and or pass the information along to somebody that you think might benefit from that. And we will look forward to seeing you or your representative or anybody that you think might want to join our support group. It is a powerful productive, loving community experience, and there have been some wonderful testimonials recently about that. That I, I mention them occasionally on the air, but most of the testimonials are private and shared by people who are in the group. So um, feel free to join us and tap into that experience and the benefit. So today we have someone with a hand up, area code 541. Is this Celinda? Yes, it is. Good morning. Welcome. How are you today? I am very good, thank you, except that I was awake with over energy last night for about four hours, so I'm not sure whether my brain and my mouth is going to work well today or not but that's all so so far so good what do you have to offer us today um the worksheet that i mentioned yesterday at the end of the show uh, that i did yesterday morning and um i um would like a little bit of maybe expansion on it or reframing or direction 
um, as I go through it. Um, always um, a little con- conciseness helps for me. And then that uh, what I discovered about my issues or about issues that come out of the heart, I was going to share that real quick also first. All right. What are you talking about issues that come out of the heart? Well, in the Bible where Yeshua says, um, for Take out care of, of the, the heart. heart, for out of it are the issues of life. There you go. Right. Exactly. And I realized that for me what that meant, the issues of life was from is from my reality and how I see things. And um, also uh, about what I miss and don't see because of what I focus on. And I realized that all of the aspects of love are issues of the heart. And for the first time, I always, re- I always framed it in a negative way. Oh, my issues, you know, what's, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with someone else or the situation. And I realized the, um, yesterday morning, really early when I woke up, that everything are issues of the heart because our creator is love and all of the aspects of love are from the heart um, of the creator and then all of the aspects of negative aspects of, of separation and judgment and all of that, that humankind has um, chosen to see instead are also. I would also, I would also try to help you look at another meaning of the word issue, kind of an antiquated you know, the archaic meaning of the word issue. Oh, perfect. What is an issue? There's an issue of blood, right? Remember that? This woman who had the problem with the issue of blood. To issue is to bring forth, to produce. And so another way, another way of interpreting that sentence, take care of the heart for out of it are the issues of life, is when you see what's going on in your unconscious, you'll understand how you're creating your experience of life. Life is coming forth from, is being issued from your unconscious more than your conscious, which is the motivation to explore that which is hidden from me. That was where my mind went to when you started explaining to bring forth and produce. It was like all of a sudden I realized that that is my creative power. Uh, and where is my creative power? In what um, area am I directing it? Uh, and how much I don't see. So that hooks into I know nothing, right? I mean, that well, could the, be the, the know nothingness, the empty headedness is the position that the way of mastery has already invited us to in just the first three lessons. It invites us to step into the realization all of this stuff that we think we know, we don't really know. And so, you know, if I go into a situation thinking that I know what I know and I know how I learned it and I know it's true and 
I'm not going to be able to learn anything new in that situation. But if I go in understanding how little I already know and whatever I think I know is only partially true and perhaps even completely false, now I'm my eyes are open and I'm observing the truth of my life and there's the potential for me to learn quite a bit. Right. Right. Yeah, what a rich, what a rich um, uh, meditation. I like that. So you were going to share a worksheet that you did. Yes. Are you prepared to do that now? Yes. All right. Okay. I surrender who am love, am experiencing, identify your emotions, and I said am disturbed by my fear of entrapment. And it's a very specific fear. My denial displaces my experience of myself as my essence love, and my mind tells me that my emotions are caused um, by my, I don't like the word trigger, my projection that our hosts have lied about us to their mother to the mother and mother-in-law, okay, in order to get us, her to do what they want. Uh, I realize this is a classic entrapment theme with me, and I also realized as soon as I put down that my host lied about us or about me specifically, but about us as a couple, um, that I didn't have any clue if that was true or not, Dr. Tim. It just it just came right up, right at that point. How do I know they lied to me? How do I know that my mother lied to me? Or the reasons if she did. So I wanted to share that, that that awareness just popped up right then. So the did you say, is, how did I know that my mother lied to me? Right. Right, exactly, because I linked it exactly to my um, home situation when I was small. Okay, and so let's, come, let's, let's really. come back to the worksheet. Okay. <clears throat> the truth is only oh, so my thoughts. Let, let me, let me, let me just ahead. say why I'm doing that, right? We have, okay. we have you who is sitting there with the worksheet, and you know what it's about, and we have anybody else who's listening who's going to try and make a mental picture of this so we want oh, to try cool. and make it as concise and focused as possible. So right. if this is about you think somebody else's mother lied to them about you and your partner on the land today, wherever you are, your host on that land. Is that correct? Okay, the host it, it, are is, is that what this worksheet is about? Yes, but it's about the hosts who are the son and daughter-in-law who lied to their mother. Not okay, so, so 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 that's we just got to keep this clear because then when you start talking about how do I know that my mother lied to me, my head was spinning already. So let's keep it as right. focused as possible. 
Let's talk about what's on the worksheet that you're presenting to us. Okay, because my first thought was, how do I know my hosts have lied to me? That led to that other thought, because they were linked. The truth is only my thoughts cause my emotional upset. Breathe. Okay, I'll breathe. <laughs> um, is that they lied to Sally about needing work to get her to do what they wanted her to do. That doesn't make any sense to you, but that, that's what's happened. Your thought is that they lied to their mother. Right. That's fine. Now, that's what that's what's causing your emotion of what? What is the emotion you're using in this one? Fear of entrapment. Okay, it's just fear. Yeah. Right? It's just fear. And when you say fear of entrapment, now what you're saying is the thought you're using to generate your fear. Your thought is, I'm entrapped. And so when you're talking now about your thought that they lied to their mother, you need to say which is entrapping us. I'm trapped because, or I'm going to be trapped. My thought is I'm going to be trapped because they lied to their mother. So when you have an emotion in these worksheets, you want to put just the emotion. Fear, not fear because of dot, dot, dot. That's what gets unraveled in the worksheet. Okay. So they lied to their mother is my story. And the thought behind that is my fear of entrapping thought you're, The thought you're using to generate fear is we're going to be trapped. Okay. I want to punish um, our hosts by judging them and myself by feeling entrapped or a victim. Okay. I am willing to process all this dis-ease as I go through the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms of healing. My desire, the constructive result, the exact goal that drives and uncovers my pain is that I want see uh, um, my host to be truthful about us when talking to others or us so I can feel safe and in charge of my own life. Three. So, again, state the goal, please. I want what? I want my hosts to be truthful about us when talking to others or us or myself so that I can feel safe and in charge of my own life. All right. You want them to be truthful. That's the goal. Go ahead. I choose love, my essence, which stirs the love in everyone involved. The rose and the butterfly story. 
when upset, my perception of my construct is built out of mistaken, corrupt data driven by my soul, my goal, my ego, driven by my ego, driven by my goal. Uh, by canceling that goal, the driver, that selects the data that produces my reality, my errant perception collapses, and I get to drop into the parts of my mind hidden from me by my pretense that others are responsible for what I have created. Again, if they are the ones with the problem, why am I the one with the pain? Action step. While holding love conscious, active, and present, Rachma, I now choose to collapse my mind lies by willingly canceling my goal or my driver for 1C from 3A to be truthful about me when talking to others or me. I invite, or, or us, I invite Ruha in Aramaic, Ruha di Kucha, to incline me towards healing, to restore me to my newborn essence of love, to heal my denial and capacity to generate my emotions of fear, and to help me open a direct conscious relationship and with and gently, I circle gently, that's a really powerful word for me, Remove the denied, dissociated, and projected parts of my mind. And I've checked all those. B, um, that would be 5C now. I cancel my need to be right and make up another story out of my hidden, mistaken, corrupt data to hallucinate proof that my fear, hostility-based story, my reality is true. And so I breathe, soften is another really powerful word for me. I now feel calm and clear about and and about one, see that they may have misperceived and or misunderstood our life or what we said. And Um, that's all I have to say about that. It might have been a simple misunderstanding or misperceiving of what we, how we live our lives or what we might have told them. A principle of the universe is that by giving, I first get the original. I am grateful for this opportunity to heal. Grateful is another really potent word for me. Um, I choose truth and perfect love. And to Vicki and Bill, based on number three from love, I structure a goal towards you and offer to you that I do my wake-up sheet work whenever I am disturbed by the fear of a specifically fear of entrapment or manipulation. Um, and that's just one of the aspects of fear that I deal with. And I breathe and soften. And now I'm targeting, watching what I um, 
how I interpret people's behavior, especially in the relation of honesty. So I can do worksheets. Okay, is that the uh, the end of your worksheet? Yes, and I breathe. Um, be love, cleanse, and bathe in the oxygen of my sacred life breath. Period. I also commit to love to living a human life. To help achieve this, I do a mass canceling of all the times I wanted number three by someone, anyone, or myself. And I initialed it. That's my worksheet, sir. Okay. And so what would you say is the insight or shift that you experienced as a result of this worksheet? That I, um, that my reality, my interpretations of what's happening out there is very often, well, of all negativity for me is I'm pulling it out of my past and I can't possibly see what's happening right now unless I, um, Unless I pay attention to what I'm doing and feeling. Oh, feeling is very hard for me. So mostly it's my thinking and my emotions and my physical reactions that I have to pay attention to because when I listened to Erica's story, I thought um, there is so much blockage there to my Feeling, being willing to feel totally and completely. So much fear, I suspect. So you have the fear of feeling your actual feelings. So you find a way to block yourself from feeling your actual feelings? Is that what you're saying? I just think so. And how did you get that insight from this worksheet? Just that awareness in the very beginning that how do I know? You know, I've jumped into knowing, oh, I know how it is so many times in my life to keep myself safe. I don't know. You know, I just know that in our family, you didn't show feelings, especially feelings of negativity. And there was very little affection on one side of the family. There was more on the other, but not on one side. The other being my father's side. All right. Is there anything else you want to share about that particular worksheet? No, and I would love to hear anything else you would have to share, any perceptions, any um, anything. 
expansion. Well, when we do the worksheets in the support group, or if I do them alone, I use I make a, a, a bigger use of the forgiveness pattern, and I leave a space for myself to do um, what you might call a bit of a meditation. As I ask to be shown and I cancel my need to be right and cancel my goal in that particular worksheet over and over and over again, and I invite whatever powers that be to show me connections to previous situations in my life because I have this understanding from the bottom line observations if I have a negative thought in my mind or a negative emotion active in my mind, I can instantly know three things. The first one is it's a lie or based on a falsehood. The second one is this is an old tape playing. This is something from my past that's been lodged into my, what Michael would call the carbon-based memory. And it's just getting, you know, somebody just pressed play. It got resonated in the activity. It's not about the present moment situation. And the third thing is I can know if I sit and spin thinking about this, speak or act from it, I'm just going to make my situation worse, not better. So with that knowledge from the bottom line observations, whenever I go into a worksheet, I'm asking to be shown what is it in my psyche, in my sense of lack of safety, in my upset, in my trauma energies, that's getting resonated right now. And as a result of that, those emotions getting resonated, those thoughts and or emotions getting resonated, that's why I picked up this worksheet. So I'm inviting that meditative process to show me something. And many times I don't get much of anything. I'll go blank or I'll just I'll say I want unconscious or my mind just sits and spins with the same phrase, I cancel my need to be right, etc., and after two or three minutes of that, if I'm just spinning and I haven't flashed an earlier childhood memory or some deep insight about family dynamics, then I just take a breath and scan my body and write on the worksheet, okay, here's what I'm feeling now. Many times, that's the, the result is I went blank or I'm not seeing any direct connection to anything from my past. And yet, the more of these worksheets I do, the more likely I am to have something resonate all kinds of connections to my past dynamics with my family. Other times in my past, I have felt this particular negative emotional state. Things that I've downloaded as beliefs about myself, not being safe, etc. And that's what makes the worksheet process that I do privately and that we do in the support groups so valuable is that extra time spent reading or reciting the forgiveness pattern. I would like to do that. And one of the best benefits of that is it tends to get me out of the, the intellectualizing, the thinking part of my mind. And if I can't get out of that intellectualizing, thinking part of my mind, I can't get unstuck. Because that's the very dynamic that Michael Rice 
includes in his seven-step wor- worksheet process with David Bohm as, you know, attributed to David Bohm is the, the phrase sustained incoherence. And sustained incoherence is exactly that, using my intellect to try and solve a mental-emotional problem. It's not going to work. Because I must have, go ahead. Go ahead. You must have what? I, I must say that I had a perception of emotional feeling as a result of that uh, awakening that I felt was an awakening right when I was putting down um, my story. And uh, I didn't think about the pattern sheet. Um, I have it here, but I think didn't think even think to pull it up because I felt like I was just filling out the rest of the worksheet in the light of that feeling I had or that shift I had in my energy. Oh, this is an old pattern. This is um, I remember this pattern very well. And that would have nothing to do with them other than the way I chose to interpret what they said. And also that I chose to make myself a victim. I was very aware of that on a, like an emotional level because I chose to be entrapped. Does that make so sense? So what emotion were you left with at the end of your worksheet process? And if you uh, have a worksheet... Do you start by rating how strong your fear is at the beginning from 0 to 10? Usually I do, but I don't. it's not on this worksheet, so sometimes I forget <clears throat> to do that. Okay, so let's just guess. At the beginning of this worksheet, how strong would you say your fear was that you were going to get trapped? I would say it was about a 5 or a 6. Okay, and at the end of the worksheet, how strong is that feeling of fear driven by the thought we're going to get trapped from 0 to 10? I'd say at a 2 at the most because I felt like I it was a co-creative process by my choosing to be a victim rather than look, asking to be shown and, uh, you know, what what's the best way for me to be or respond to this situation? That I'm perceiving. Okay, so if I were doing that and I went from a six to a two, I would mark the worksheet as a successful worksheet. I would too. And I would probably say, all right, here are these other thoughts I have. Here's this role of victim. Here's this shift in energy. And these are my future worksheets. I'd How probably make a list of four or five other worksheets right from just what you had in this particular worksheet. The thought about how do I know my mother lied to me, the thought about myself as a victim, the thought about being entrapped. I could do another one on entrapment. What other times in my life where I actually felt I believed I was trapped or thoughts of helplessness that come up with entrapment. All of those could be put on other worksheets, what Michael Rice would call the Hydra effect. 
Right. Which um, was definitely connected to the worksheet that the support group and you helped me so much with because that isn't even an issue with me in that specific situation anymore. I was able to totally come to the realization that I chose that. I chose that in multiple You've lost me. I don't know what it is you're saying you chose. Uh, To feel victimized, to feel that I was trapped, that I couldn't do anything differently. So... Yeah, and so this is another aspect. This is an aspect more in the now, and I feel very comfortable with it. I feel very comfortable. And maybe I'm trying to be perfect and feel like, oh, I should feel as deeply as someone else does or be willing to go as deeply in my feelings as someone else does. Um so I'm very comfortable with this right now. This is where I am right now. And uh, it's uh, it's also flowing over into other interpretations I made in the relationship of us and our host. And I'm going, oh, I can look at this again <laughs> and uh, reframe it. Okay. Well, that would be my feedback on that worksheet, and nobody else has a hand up for comments and questions, but if they do, um, I'll be happy to pass those along to you. Is there anything else we can do to be of service for you today? No, other than to be I'm very grateful for all of the um, guidance you give, and especially about helping me to focus because focus has been a problem for me all of my life and I do believe that I chose not to focus as a, as a safety issue for myself and so now I have the opportunity to do something about that and so I thank you. You're most welcome and deserving. So thank you. I will mute you so you can listen to the rest of the show, and I will invite others to make a comment if they have any about that worksheet process or their own worksheets if they've been doing any lately. And um, just a reminder that there are a host of different worksheets out there, the one that uh, Linda was reading from is not the most recent um, seven-step reality management worksheet, but it's very close in many ways. And we are hopeful that examples like that are useful, they're educational, and or that they stimulate for you um, worksheets you might do and or questions about the worksheet process. Again, there is no hard and fast, perfect way to do it. And perfection is the enemy of progress, so to speak. So you want to make sure you 
understand if you're having a I'm I'm so stuck because I can't figure the right goal or the right I can't figure out is this an emotion or is this a thought go ahead and put it on the worksheet anyway and work through it breathe and soften allow stuff to bubble up and then watch what happens um, we've had a number of people over the years who have ended up with the stuck situation where their perfection is the enemy of progress and or they're afraid of doing it wrong and we strongly encourage people in that situation to go ahead and do it and do it wrong. Invite it to be wrong and go ahead and do it anyway. So, 563-999-3581 is our phone number. If you call that number and press 1, press 1, we can have a conversation. Our second hour today is going to be a recording because Michael and Jeannie are observing some kind of a school pageant or performance with Aria Rain, their granddaughter. And I just looked up and saw that there's only about 18 minutes left in our first hour. So... I'll just do a little review here of what we've been doing in the Way of Mastery in the third lesson. And one of the one of the key phrases is coming up as the heading for the next section and I will come back and and redo this tomorrow when I read, but I'll highlight it here. Reactivity indicates the need for self-forgiveness. And the way to explain that in this work is not that I forgive myself, but I apply the process of forgiveness to the judgments and to the negative beliefs I've downloaded about myself. I dismantle those. And that I understand that any time I have a strong negative reaction, even a mild negative reaction, it's there, as this work talks about, as an opportunity for me to bring a new conscious presence to energies, thoughts, and beliefs that once defeated me. And what do we mean by defeated me? That has me choosing for fear or any of its stepchildren, any of the negative emotions of sadness or grief or hurt or confusion or any negative emotion, jealousy, etc. Rather than choosing for love, because this work understands you remain as you were created to be. How were you created to be? You were created as the extension of love in form. You are the energy of creation expressing in form. 
you have the potential to be consciously aware of that all day, every day. Michael Rice likes to talk about it as having that conscious, active, present energy of awareness of your true nature as love vibrating in every cell in your body. That's just words. I mean, it doesn't. That, those words don't mean anything unless you've had an experience that goes beyond those words and you use those words to try and point toward the experience. I have had many an interaction in my life where people were talking about love and they were talking about being loving and they were talking about how we're all one and peace and love and and the energy radiating off of them is anything but loving in my experience. And so we're not talking about the words. We're talking about what lies beyond these words, the experiences that each and every one of us can usher ourselves into. How do I usher myself into a different experience? I have to start doing something differently than I've always done before. What's the first and most poignant invitation to do something differently in the way of mastery? It happens before they even get into the text. It happens in the promise. And we're invited to put away everything we think we know and put down everything we think we want or need. Now, I don't know about you, but as I come from a Western mindset training, even a very loving family, this is the opposite of what I was trained to do. I was trained for all those years in school to sit up straight and pay attention and write down what the teacher said and read what's in the book and be able to spit it back on the test. And when I get it right, I get rewarded. And when I get it wrong, I get punished. And this invitation says, try something new. Try canceling everything you think you know. Try waking up to the fact that you know almost nothing for any kind of certainty. And put away everything you think you need and every goal you have, every want you have, put it away. And notice that every thought you have in your mind about everything you've ever done or anything that's been done to you, where there's a negative emotional state attached, there's a fear or any of its stepchildren attached, you're invited to look on that lovingly as simply innocent and self-created. Oh, this happened and I threw a negative interpretation on it and then I downloaded these negative beliefs about it and that's the only reason I experienced it the way I did. Whether it was a physical injury, a car accident, the death of a loved one, the coming in second or third in some kind of competition, whatever it is, if I downloaded a negative emotional experience from it, it was my creation. And it's perfectly safe for me to look at that as totally innocent, completely neutral, and simply self-caused. And, and we step right into the first two lessons where it says, by the way, you don't experience anything other than the effects of your choices. And then in the third lesson, by the way, every experience you've ever had of another person 
has been the result of you relating to your thoughts and judgments about that person, not you relating to that person. You've, for the most part, just like Krishnamurti talks about, most people on the planet have never had a relationship with another person. They've only had a relationship with their thoughts and beliefs and fantasies about that other person. And we're invited to step into the awareness that every time we create a judgment, every time we have a tightness or a tension in our body, it, it indicates that judgment has arisen or gotten resonated from the past. And reactivity of any kind is the warning sign that tells me I would do well in this moment to apply forgiveness to those thoughts and beliefs. I would to dismantle my judgments and all of the perceptions that have arisen from them. So, the way of mastering the lesson three, under the heading that says, Reactivity indicates the need for self-forgiveness, the text reads, Rest assured, you will continue to project upon others whatever remains unhealed and undismantled or unforgiven within yourself. Each time you react to another in any way, you're being given a sign that there is some kind of energy in your energy system, in your mind-body energy system that's been presented to your awareness that you have not dismantled or forgiven within yourself. And that's the only reason you have a negative reaction. This has woven itself into the bottom line observations where it says, I will never be upset about anything anybody else ever says or does or doesn't do that I think they should unless I'm still judging myself negatively for doing the same or similar thing. That's what they're talking about here. Rest assured, you will continue to project upon others what remains unhealed within yourself. If you are still judging yourself negatively for being dishonest, rude, impatient, inappropriately angry, weak-willed, ineffective, whatever the judgment is that your mind is telling you is causing you to be upset in this moment about someone or something else, that is never the cause of the dynamic you're experiencing within you. It's all an inside job. Michael Rice would say, it's all done with smoke and mirrors to make you feel and believe that you're upset because dot, dot, dot. You're upset because this person said or did that. You're upset because this person didn't show up as they promised. You're upset because this person dumped you in the relationship. You're upset because somebody ripped you off for $20,000. This work tells us over and over again Whatever is in my mind that follows the word, the words, I'm upset because, whatever's come next is an absolute lie. I'm only upset because of the energies within myself that I have used to formulate a judgment, usually negatively against myself, and I keep pouring my mind energy into. And until I wake up and realize that, and that I never feel upset because of the outside events, because all events are neutral, and I only always and forever feel upset 
because of the interpretations I've chosen and placed on this situation. And those interpretations have energy. They have vibrations. They have words. We have meanings within my mind energy system, and that's what's stirring up or adding energy to past traumas and upsets and fears and griefs. And that's why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, not because this or that happened. So we'll come back to this and start here again tomorrow as we read more of the Way of Mastery. Any kind of negative reaction in my mind-body energy system, this work tells me that's my signal to stop what I'm doing, take a few calming breaths, turn the focus inside myself, and ask myself, how am I creating this upset? What am I making this situation mean? What is it that remains unhealed or unintegrated or unwelcomed inside of myself that I can now address because it's come to my awareness. And that's the core of this work, and it's also the fundamental basis that we keep returning to. So... Our second hour today, as I've already mentioned, is going to be a recording. It's an interview that um, Michael Rice did with Mitch Rabin. And I'm just about an hour, so we're, we're ending just about five minutes early here in the first hour, and we'll we'll play the interview with... Um, Mitchell J. Rabin and Michael Rice, um, many, many years ago now, and it was part of a dual um, a dual set that Michael had where one hour is the interview with Michael Rice and Mitchell Rabin, and the other is Mitchell Rabin and Bruce Lipton. So... I'll remind us all that we come from love, we're made of the stuff we call love, we actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and we're going to have another very interesting show again today. Today, we have Dr. Michael Rison, who is the author of this book that is growing madly and wildly in popularity. Why is this happening to me again? Michael has brought the wisdom that he has from years ago in his study and involvement with physics and electronics and has brought it to bear in the domain of human relationships as well as our relationship to ourselves. Through a lot of pioneering research and self-reflection, he has come up with a series of programs, of classes, which he has been teaching worldwide for free for the past many years. No one has denied access to these programs because Michael made a commitment to expose anyone and everyone who would be interested in his work to it without any barrier whatsoever. 
So this is one of the reasons we wanted to have Dr. Michael Rice on the show today, and also to expose you all, all of us, to this pioneering work he's doing, so we can have what we most want, a happier and better world. Great. So Michael. Glad to be here. Pleasure to have you. All right. Great. What is it that first motivated you into this uh, originally? Going My own from, uh, the world of electronics and business and everything to make the leap that you did is quite unusual and extraordinary. It was my own need to heal. started out with uh, the first year of my life I was almost dead three or four times and uh, for the Probably first what? 25 years lived on an inhalator and pills, lung problems oh. and uh, just the continuous search for how do I move out of that, uh, that mode of living mm. and haven't touched a pill in 25 years now. God uh, bless. Once I found uh, this new way of thinking, a different way of thinking, and naturopathic medicine, that was the end of the, uh, of so the lung problem. You were, you were physically ill yeah. and suffering all of that and probably were trying and using conventional medical means to solve the problem. I'm still recovering from that part of the process. Right? <laughs> I see, yeah, still right. detoxifying. Yeah. Can you get insurance for that kind of thing? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> And so then you obviously discovered naturopathic medicine and uh, turned to natural means. Correct. Well, natural means and going further than just natural means, but looking at the interaction of how the body and the mind operate, how the emotions operate. My original work being in electronics, when I first started to study naturopathic medicine, it became clear to me that the body was an energy system. That was kind of like one of the first insights. Ah, this is just an energy system. And started to apply what I'd learned in physics to the body and uh, then starting to listen to Einstein and it's interesting how long it takes for so just to catch up with good science <laughs> you listen to Einstein and he taught us decades ago that matter doesn't exist if matter doesn't <laughs> exist then right. bodies don't exist if bodies don't exist then what's really going on here right. so started to look from the point of view of energy and started to treat the body as an energy system and once you do that you recognize there are basically two qualities of energy relative to the system. What builds the system up? What tears the system down? Sure. Integrative and disintegrative energy. Mm -hmm. And to start to qualify the types of energy that we choose to put into our energy system, be they physical, mental, or emotional. So tying that together with the, uh, the Aramaic language, I then discovered some years after that, uh, in listening to someone speak about the Aramaic language, that the Aramaic, which is the native language of five of the world's major religions, the Aramaic language is an energy systems language. It, they understood in Aramaic the latest that the physicists are now coming to understand. You know, and they said things like a little leavening leavens a whole loaf. They were talking about the principle of critical mass in physics. If you go to the opening words in the book of John, it doesn't say in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. What it says is in the beginning was the mind energy or the willed action. What is our willed action? What does our mind energy have to do with the state of our physiology? Everything. And in fact, I've come to the conclusion that it is the initiation point of all disease process. Mind. Mind, yes. When you put mind energy into tissue, and of course medically you're starting to prove that the mind functions through every cell in the body, when you put mind energy into tissue, wherever that energy is stored, is if it is of a disintegrative nature, you begin the disintegration of the tissue. Process, exactly. And when tissue disintegrates, there's a cleanup crew. The, the bacteria and the virus bear no causal relationship to disease. They're a cleanup crew that appears spontaneously in response to decay. And they're there to clean up the decay. They're not the cause of the decay. Absolutely true. 
God, it's a pleasure to hear it put so succinctly. <laughs> really, really. We've had people on, cellular biologists and others, who have proven the physiological basis of consciousness and the relationship of the body to the mind and the mind to the body, and how the mind interacts with cells at neuroreceptor sites at each cell. Right. So we have this proof. This is no longer, you know, fancy schmancy or airy kind of uh, new age thinking. Right. This is absolutely 100% grounded in science. Yes. And and our guts have told us this all along. Mm -hmm. Now, what brought you to Aramaic of all languages? I actually was invited to a lecture by some friends oh back 18, 19, 20 years ago, and there was a fellow named Rocco Erico who uh, was a protege of a man named George Lomsey. They had thought that the Aramaic language was a dead language up until World War I, and they found and they in the northern... Speaking well, in the northern Kurdistan Mountains, they found communities of people who were living is the way they were two, three, four thousand years ago Fantastic. and speaking the same language. And so a fellow named Lamsa brought uh, translations out of the Aramaic into English, and it's just so radically different from what we see that comes from the Greek thought. Most of what we see of ancient scriptures, though their source was Aramaic, we see Greek as source. Mm -hmm. And Greek didn't source any of that stuff. And Greek isn't capable of sourcing it because it's such a radically different thought system. And when you start to get into the Aramaic idioms and the Aramaic conceptual framework, everything that's in those scriptures is perfectly and completely logical. There is nothing... Uh, mystical about it. There's not even anything religious about it. It's just, this is the way the energy system works, folks. And the idioms, for instance, one of my favorite idioms, you know, they, there's, a, there's a statement that's often repeated as an excuse for somebody who's got their hand out saying, give me your money, of, um, you know, it's, it's easier for a rich man or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What the heck does that mean? You go to the Aramaic and Jerusalem was a walled city. They had gates, but at night, of course, they closed, so they weren't attacked. Mm -hmm. But they were hospitable people, and they had off to the side a small gate. And to enter that gate, you know, if you came along at night, it was open. You could get in. You weren't left out in the wild. Mm -hmm. And to get in that gate, though, of course, they didn't want armies invading. You had to unload your camel. You had to get him down on his knees and force him through the gate. The gate was called the eye of the needle. <laughs> you know, it, just, it all of a sudden makes perfect sense. There's nothing mystical anymore when you start looking from the Aramaic perspective. Sure. And it ties perfectly with the physics of what's going on in the world. Now, before we get into that, was Aramaic, a, it wasn't a written language, was it? it yes, was oh yes. A, oh, it was As a matter of fact, the Aramaic characters are the uh, characters that are used today to write the Hebrew language. And it predates the Hebrew language. It predates, that predates. I know, but you're saying that the Hebrew lettering is from it's the Aramaic. Aramaic. Yes, a strangle, yeah. Hmm. And it's a language that, interestingly enough... Are they related in terms of linguistic families? Uh, oh, yes, yes, there is Hebrew a relationship. Hebrew and Aramaic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a, or Hebrew would be a derivative of the Aramaic. Yeah. And the Aramaic, interestingly enough, appeared in several places on the planet simultaneously. Such as... With no historical... Um, developmental process. You know, in English we can say, well, there's a Latin root, the French root. There's none of that. It's just fully formed several places simultaneously God. on the planet. But without the communities having anything to do with each other. Correct. Correct. They're just distinct appeared. geographical locations. Yes. And spontaneous arising. Yes. Maybe and not so spontaneous, but arising. Well, yes. right, at least arising. <laughs> right. Now, where are those places and oh, what's this happening? Broad, 
uh, it's been found in South America, the uh, glyphs on Easter Island. Um, one of the translators, uh, someone named Yonan, uh, was working back uh, when the, I believe it was the Queen of England was being uh, coronated back in the late 40s, early 50s. And he was doing some Aramaic translations. A friend of mine was, was present at the time. And uh, they were doing this coronation service in um, uh, Gaelic. And he starts translating. Gaelic language is Aramaic based. It's just far and wide. And it was the language of the day for, oh, a distance of a thousand miles or better from the Mideast to the Wall of China that you could go and, and you'd find Aramaic being spoken. In what years were those? And that goes back uh, 2,000 to 4,000 years ago. It's the language of all of the Old Testament prophets. It's the language of Jesus. It's the language of Muhammad, uh, the language of Baha'u'llah, bah uh, the language of Zoroaster. It's thought that it might have been the language of the Buddha. Uh, well, broad, I broad. Zoroaster was, uh, was Persian, mm -hmm. was Farsi. Yes, and correct. Buddha and that was, was Aramaic. Pali and Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. But there's some, that's why Sam, I haven't been able to document it, but there's some suspicion that the Buddha actually spoke Aramaic. <laughs> and right up to modern times is what mid 1800s Maybe that explains Baha why there are so many Jews involved in Buddhism. It could, could well be that the, uh, the brain cells are there for it. Wow. So when you start looking in that language and the whole fashion, foundation fashion. of why is this happening to me again is that reality is not what we've been taught it is. That's reality is not what's going on out there. Reality is what's happening between our ears. Yes. Actuality is what's happening out there. Now, you and I sit here and externally we look around and we're both experiencing the same actuality. But I guarantee that your reality, the output of your mind is different from mine. And the output of my mind is different from yours. Now, how can we no. actually determine that? Well, I, let's just sit and describe I mean, what's happened so far here. But, yeah. Well, I guarantee that if each of us sat and wrote down what's happened in the last... 15 minutes together, mm -hmm. we would not have the same descriptors because we haven't experienced the same reality. We've experienced different realities. Sure, we have our different interpretations right. of what is actually going on. So when you start looking at reality being the output of the human mind, we're getting to see a small fragment in our minds of what's going on in the world. Some Harvard research shows that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is 10,000 units of measurable electrical activity happen, mm -hmm. the max amount of information that goes into making up our reality in that time frame is nine bits. It's been estimated in the same time frame that approximately 25 billion bits are available in the environment. So you and I sit here and we take the potential 25 billion bits and reduce it to nine. Ever, ever been in a courtroom where six people testified about an accident and you wonder if any two of them were at the same accident? Absolutely. How does that happen? See, this All you have to do is organize that nine bits of information differently, select a different nine bits, organize it differently. You've got a different reality. Sure. This was known many thousands of years ago by the Indians, the Tibetans, and the Chinese. Yes. The Abhidharma from great classic from India talks about the nature of perception mm -hmm. and what the eye sees and what the inner eye sees and what's not seen anywhere. Right. Uh, how we close down Aldous Huxley in the doors of perception mm -hmm. also discussed exactly the same thing, that mm -hmm. what we admit into our consciousness, into our conscious perception, is absolutely minimal. Right. Our illusions. 
fragmentary. Yeah. You go into the Aramaic language and the word illusion doesn't mean something that doesn't exist. And I don't believe if you went into the Sanskrit roots, although that's not something I've done, that you'd find that the word illusion means something that doesn't exist. Right. The root of the word illusion in Aramaic is measured. So out of the 25 billion bits of information, what have I measured into my mind? Mm. What have you measured into your mind? You have an illusion, what you've measured, and I have one. Mine impacts my physiology, yours impacts your physiology. And the, the basic problem and where a lot of resolution lies in relationship is, if you and I interact, and let's say you bring up a painful reality in me, what's the first thing I do if I'm the natural, the, you know, the yeah, human being in today's culture? I deny that it's mine and I blame you. Right. <laughs> well, the mind is an evidential device, so now I hide all evidence of my responsibility in this situation. I blame you, and of course I invite you to change, and if you don't change, I punish you. And if punishment doesn't work, get out of my life. But what most people don't realize when that process happens is that when I throw you out of my life, I walk away with my painful reality fully intact, although I can hide it from myself. I had the, uh, the distinct honor of being able to do some work with a gentleman named Marcel Vogel, who was a 23-year senior scientist from IBM. Mm -hmm. Marcel developed the instrumentation in the laboratory with which to take a picture of the high-energy waves that leave the mind we think thought. So when I hold a reality, I'm literally setting up a measurable energy wave, and every energy wave that we send out carries information. Sure. And so if I'm in the potential of interacting with a million different people, who do you suppose is going to show up on my doorstep? the person who's in tune with that energy wave that I'm sending out. Mm -hmm. And so they show up and they bring up my painful reality and I deny it and I blame them and I want them to change. And if they don't change, I punish them and throw them out of my life. What I'm essentially saying when I say yeah. you or they change is I want you to change my mind, which is ridiculous. You're so actually sending out a message to attract them. Precisely. And the point is that this isn't just some kind of unconscious phenomenon discussed by people like Sigmund Freud. This is an actual physical message this is life. you <laughs> broadcast. Exactly. Right. And people come together in our, we do a workshop called Healing Through Relationships. Mm -hmm. In our Healing Through Relationships workshop, we describe re most relationships as being based on matching bags of garbage. Our, the, the garbage stuff, the stuff we don't want to deal with, tends to be the stuff that has emotional attachment. Yes. The emotion, you look at that word energy in motion, tends to amplify those waves. And so people who have matching bags of garbage tend to resonate or be attracted to each other. And the reason for that is because there's that energy boost. You know, they talk about vibes or chemistry. There's a chemistry between us. Why? Because there's that kind of an energy exchange. And it won't be long when two people are attracted to each other before they'll know exactly how to give each other the look. Do you know anybody in your life that knows how to give you the look? You know, who can bring up every hellish thing you've ever experienced <laughs> and never <laughs> wanted to deal with in an instant, right? And sure. so when you're playing the game of denial and blaming others, you're cut off from the information that shows you how to heal so they become the problem. When you start to look responsibly... I mean, the psychological language, psychoanalytic language is projection. Right. Well, we actually refine that a little bit yeah, from ahead. there in that when I look at you and I say, Mitch, I see a body. Is there such a thing as a body? No. Einstein says matter doesn't exist. There's no such thing. What is there is an energy system, and because of the rate of the spin of the energy in the system, my mind can't keep up with that rate of spin and show me what you actually are. My mind generates an appearance called a body.
Now, if you happen to trigger or resonate a painful reality in me, something I'm in denial about, I will literally use that information to generate my brain's image of you. So you, Mitch, show up with my painful reality attached. Go back to the uh, Aramaic concept in Corinthians, and what does it say? Beware you who judge another for that in which you judge another. You have been practicing. It's been going on inside of you in order to be able to see it in someone else. So when I generate, in, in the refinement of this work, when I generate an image of you made up of and based upon what I don't want to deal with, I literally take the content, the energy in my brain cell structure, and I project it into my brain's image of you. That's where the projection stops. It's an internal image. Then I externalize the image and I pretend that I'm actually dealing with you rather than an sure. image in my brain. And most people have never had a relationship with another human being. They've only <laughs> ever had relationships with images in their brain. Just stage one. I mean, how many people have, have had the experience? Anybody here ever had the experience of interacting with someone and the next day they say, and why did you say this and why did you do that and why did you do that? And you sit back and you go, well, when did that happen? That never occurred. Well, are they lying to you when they say you did and you said and you... They're not lying to you at all. You triggered those realities. Those realities came up in their minds and they experienced them and externalized them as though you'd done it. And they didn't. In their conversation with themselves about whatever, they're saying these things. It's almost like a rehearsal and it's getting further embedded and further imprinted. Right. So when they actually deal with the so-called physical person, in quotation marks, then it's like a dumping time. Precisely. And they actually experience that person, that image in their brain, doing and saying the things Absolutely. that they say they didn't say. They created and then that externalized reality. It. That's, right. That's right. And then they externalize it upon that person. That's right. And, That's of course, again, when I say you should change, what I'm really saying is I want you to change the image in my brain, which you can't That's do. Right. And if we have matching bags of garbage, you're probably going to want me to change the image in your brain. And we've got uh, a perfect formula for helpless, hopeless, and failure. Now, the alternative to that, if we actually decide to go for responsibility, is, yeah. gee, you know, Mitch, instead of, in the world's language, you made me angry, you know, Mitch, when you said what you just said, you brought up a lot of anger in me. And what I'd like to do is heal my anger. Would you support me? Now... That's not the kind of communication that turns people out of relationship. That's the kind of communication that tends to invite people into a relationship. Just that simple shift. We do a, a workshop called Communication. Did you hear what I think I said? And we talk about the difference between projection language and responsibility language. And you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll ask people in the workshop, is there anybody here that's, that's ever been in a, a school, watched a movie, read a book, watched a play, uh, been in an educational institution of any kind where two people had conflict and person one stood before person two and said, gee, you know, when you say things like that, it brings a lot of anger up for me. Would you support me healing my anger? Nobody's ever seen it in the world because the whole world teaches us to project, to make it somebody else's fault, to externalize those internal images. That's right. Now, you people go back don't even have relationships with their internal selves, by and large. That's right. And they know virtually nothing about the internal processes of perception, or physiology of the brain, neurology, or ready to go. Correct. Now go back 2,000 years ago, the scene was no different. And what they said, and you go back in Aramaic and you think of it again in terms of energy, what they said in Aramaic was, do not be molded by the world or you will end up moldy. 
<laughs> it actually didn't say it quite that way, but that's basically the message. Yeah. That if we buy into, in. yeah, if yeah. we buy in, well, it literally becomes moldy and because yeah. if we buy yeah, into, yeah. what's what's the game in the world today? How much hatred? How much fear? You know, turn on the six o'clock news and you'll find the worst mind energy oh, yeah. gathered from the whole of the planet for the day. And if you buy into that, you will literally decay your tissue structure by the storage of that information, that quality of energy in your system. So you literally end up moldy. It's the cause of death. Well, Michael, when we say uh, don't bother being angry at that person because you're sitting here bitterly angry about an interaction that occurred or resentful, and that person is out on their yacht having a great time fishing. Right. So wait a minute, what's Doesn't this? even know what happened. Doesn't even know what happened. Right. But in my own reality, I'm sitting here suffering. Right. And according to energetics, like in the Oriental system where there's always a relationship between uh, an energetic system in the body and an emotion, Right. our liver ends up getting damaged in mm -hmm. this particular case and mm -hmm. on and on and on because everything is one big interactive systemic whole right right anyway, so the whole energy system I just want to say I mean I mean I'm sure you're familiar with this I'm as you're going because of the computer function of the mind this many of the things you're saying I'm going back and I see where a lot of this has come up in my life mm -hmm. uh, on a professional level for instance the point you said about anger and rather than saying you made me angry but mm -hmm. I when you do such and such I feel anger and da, 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 and then processing it Fritz Perls was talking about this you know 25 30 years ago right and that was the basis of gestalt therapy mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what is the difference then between what you're doing and something like gestalt well I think that there are a lot is of parallels if there's anything that works there have to be parallels because there's only one energy system and one set of rules by which it works. Yes, but so there are many ways of articulating the same. The thing. ways of articulating it, and I, to me, one of the things that helps people break through with this work is the synthesis of several disciplines. Uh, I draw on science, I draw on psychology, I draw on the theology, the ancient Aramaic language and culture. When the mind hears it in one language, it goes, oh, that's really interesting, that's, that's really neat. But when it hears it simultaneously in several different conceptual languages, breakthrough happens. It isn't just one part of the mind that, that entertains it as, oh, that's an interesting belief system. But rather, it, it makes for a fundamental energy shift when you hear it. You know, everybody's got, or most people have got their old church training. And then they hear the psychological language. Then they hear the physics of disintegrative energy. And then, for instance, then we tie in with Let's see another idea from the Aramaic of sin. Sin in Aramaic is not some terrible, awful thing that you've done. The word sin is an archery term. When you fire at the target, you miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper yelled, sin, you're off the mark. It was meant to be positive feedback, as in take another shot. Not you Greek. terrible, horrible thing. But that's from the Greek. But the original Aramaic concept, the word kathah, is sin, off Beautiful. the mark. Right. So now when you think of that in terms of this body-mind unit, if I sin, if I bring an energy in that's off the mark, then I self-destruct. The wages of sin is death is a statement of physiology, not religion. The result of bringing disintegrative energy into yourself, you get the original, they get the carbon copy, and who gets to pay the price? You know, if, if I hate, sure. 
we had a, a gal in uh, one of this our intensives. This is disintegrative for me. Correct. We had a gal in one of our intensives this, uh, this past summer. We have a teaching center in the Ozarks called Heartland. And uh, she came up with just a beautiful definition for bitterness, but it really applies to all of the emotions. And that is that bitterness is drinking a cup of poison and waiting for somebody else to die. You know, and when we hate, when we have fear, anger, vengeance, <laughs> criticism, condemnation, gossip, slander, they're all energies that we put into our system. We get the original. It's registered in every cell in the system, incidentally, including the germ cell. So if someone conceives a child, that child receives every reality, every thought, every feeling, every reality that both parents have engaged in. It becomes part of their actual physiological structure. And Parents, so, lineage. Yes, precisely. They say genetic disease. There's no such thing as a genetic disease. But there is an energy system that registers everything that goes into it, and so it reflects as a disease process. Sure. And we are, and it or came have from the ability, right. right? And we have the ability, and are in fact continuously, I would offer, changing our genetic structure by what we put into it and what we remove. In the Aramaic language, right. and kind of one of the core tools that we teach is a tool called reality management. That's what we focus on in, the, in this book. This, that particular is one of the main tools that, that we show work on. Book. Well, let's show that book. Sure. Yeah. But the, the, the reality management tool is from the Aramaic forgiveness. In Aramaic, the word forgive doesn't mean I'll let you off the hook, Mitch, for the terrible thing you've done to me. The word forgive means a tool for changing a reality in my mind. So now when you and I interact, if I can be responsible and say, gee, this is my rage, I'd like to heal my rage, rather than an enemy to blame it on, I have a potential support team to assist me in healing it. And so now, and then another tool we teach in the, uh, in the Why Is This Happening to Me Again is called My Commitment, which comes from our uh, Healing Through Relationships workshop. And there we kind of lay out a blueprint or a roadmap for, okay, when trauma comes up in a relationship, here's how you can shift the energy. Here's how you can create a cooperative process for moving through it rather than keep loading on the trash, loading on the trash until there's no relationship left. Wonderful. Wonderful. Let's give people a number where they can find out more information about uh, getting your book and the kind of work you're doing because you're teaching worldwide and you teach in the Ozarks. So yeah, we travel around the country uh, sure. c continuously. All of the work that we do when we travel is done free. And uh, our commitment is to make the tools we teach available to every mind on the planet. And if people want more information about the book or our, our teaching center, the work we do, our number is 800-583-4827. We also have a website if somebody wants to look up there and find out what our schedule is good. if they want to visit good, a workshop. Good, good. And our website is www.kcmo, as in Kansas City, Missouri, KCMO dot com forward slash why again www dot kcmo dot com forward slash why again so they can always access our schedule yeah. there or uh, through the 800 number let's give them the 800 number again one more time sure 583-9827 is where we can be found excellent and we do summer programs in the Ozarks people will come and study with us anywhere from nine days to four months at a time. Wow. And then when we travel, we do a series of two and a half hour workshops. And each workshop is geared to giving a specific tool. Like if people come to the Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop, they'll walk out after two and a half hours with a tool. Here's what you can do 
with so it's very this practical. Yeah, it's well with the background electronics. You know, when you're working with electronic equipment, philosophy doesn't mean a darn thing. Sure. When you come out the other end and plug in, it's got to work. Got to work. <laughs> and so my focus has always been, well, how do we get this down to something that works? Exactly. Something that people can actually use. So well, on I a two and a half hour uh, time frame or out of the book, people can actually step in and come out of it with a step by step yeah. set of tools. Well, it's wonderful work, and uh, if you'd stay tuned, we'll uh, pick up where we left off. Great. Let's Great. do it. Pleasure to have you on the show, Michael. Thanks. Nice to be here. Good. So we've been talking with Dr. Michael Rice, the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And his work really offers an avenue for getting out of why this is happening to me again. Don't you all know what that feels like? Again. So... Stay tuned for the next show. We'll be picking up with Michael and carrying on and looking at some specifics of people he's worked with over the years. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. We're very glad you've joined us again. Call me at 212-420-0800. Share your thoughts and feelings with me. You know I love hearing from you. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and we're very glad that you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to be continuing on with Dr. Michael Rice, the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? and What You Can Do About It. So we're going to be talking about the way we perceive the nature of perception, the nature of emotions from a physiological point of view actually how keeping negative emotions circulating in your mind and body as if there were a difference are impacting your health and of course what you can do about it how you can turn around that trend so Michael has been traveling the world and offering his workshops and classes for free for many many years is the author of this book with over 70,000 in print now and has a program that's offered in a center in the Ozarks where anyone is free to go and meet with him and experience this really groundbreaking work that he's doing out there. We're very impressed with him here and very pleased to have him on the show again. So I want to welcome you again. Michael. Thank you. Nice Absolutely. to be here. Good, good. Why don't we give a number where people can, if they want to get more information about the book, call up and also learn sure. about your workshops and programs. Sure, they can uh, call us at 800-583-9827 and uh, get information on our travel workshops, 583-9827, um, on uh, the schedule at Heartland and what happens there. We basically do a summer program there each year, and our workshops there run anywhere from nine days to four months. And then when we travel, and we usually travel six to ten months of the year, all of our travel work is done free, so it's available to Anyone and everyone. That's fantastic. That's just fantastic. See, it can be done, folks. It can. You can really follow your heart and listen and act on that basis and have an incredibly rich life. And here's proof right here. Let's go for it. Yeah? Okay. Good. So we were talking about forgiveness mm -hmm. at the end of the last show. Right. And when we spoke recently, you had told me a story which I wish you would share with the... Uh, with the audience of meeting with a group of physicists? Well, basically, the, um, the synthesis of the different ideas 
leads to being able to convey the same message in several different conceptual languages. Mm -hmm. And what we have, and I think it was Winston Churchill that, uh, that said that we have the privilege of being separated by a common language, that we develop a language to describe uh, an observed phenomenon, and we think because somebody describes it, that phenomenon in a different conceptual language, that they're talking about something different, as though there could be a conflict, for instance, between science and theology. And the truth is, there's only Absolutely. one thing operating in the world, and that's energy. And there are many like conceptual itself. frameworks to speak of it in. And so what I was saying in that conversation is that it's, it, I have done it many times, sat with physicists, and explained the process of forgiveness from an energy perspective and from a physics level, you know, research, brain bio institute, National Institute of Health says that every thought we think forms a molecule in the body. Forms a molecule. Forms a molecule in the body. I mean, they're talking, this is hard science. This is the National Institute of Health telling us this. And the quality of the molecule, of course, determines the quality of the whole physiological system. Is this Candace system. Pert? This is Candace Pert, uh, yes, yes. And so... She's the only one there who would say that. <laughs> well, maybe the only one that would admit it. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, in, in, out in the front, front lines, right. but uh, behind the so door. So aren't in the uh, holistic medicine department. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. right. So you can speak in the language of physics about this energy system called the body, and that if you put enough hate into it, you're going to start to deteriorate the, the, the quality of the body the quality of the emotions that, that that system produces, the quality of realities that it generates internally, and the quality of relationship and world that it creates. What and, does and then forgiving, removing those mm. realities, is what allows the system to go back and rebuild itself. It's the key to all forms of healing. Mm -hmm. Without forgiveness, true healing doesn't ever happen. You can shift symptoms around in the system. You can, you know, pop a pill and knock a, a disintegrative energy out of this particular tissue structure, but it shows up somewhere else. You'll notice sure. somebody who started on one drug for the ABC disease 20 years ago is now taking 12 drugs for 12 different diseases. And well, and also to no. antidote the, the drugs they were taking for ABC Precisely. disease. Precisely. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. 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 Before you had mentioned, so what is the, the definition in Aramaic of forgiveness? Then? Well, let's lay a little bit of foundation in case yeah. people didn't hear the first show. Reality in the foundation of this work is the output of the human mind. Actuality is what's going on in the world. Sure. As I said in the last show, you and I right now experiencing the same actuality are experiencing different realities. If around this particular actuality, I experience a painful reality. In the Aramaic, they would describe the process of forgiveness as the tool with which I get rid of my painful reality. It isn't letting you off the hook for having done it to me. The, the whole concept of forgiveness as it comes from the Aramaic was totally deteriorated when it was passed into the Greek culture and the Greek language. You'll remember the that Christian. the whole tradition well the well not necessarily now yeah. if you look at the eastern christian traditions totally different oh, things eastern orthodox yes it's a whole different process because they come out of the aramaic out of the eastern thought and they remain connected to it yes and they still use aramaic scriptures today but you go into the greek and remember the greek philosophies externalized the powers the gods were all out there sure so you know there was a god for this and the god for that some of the most horrific creatures you can imagine i mean they raped their mothers they killed their fathers they killed their children i mean incredible but the powers were primarily external uh -huh. now 
when you think about that, if that's the conceptual framework that one comes from, that the powers are external, is it any wonder that we're talking about forgiveness in terms of forgiving them? And basically what's happened is, for the Aramaic concept of forgiveness, the Greek concept of pardoning has been substituted. So now I'll pardon this external power, oh, yeah. this person That's who's... exactly right. Yeah. And in so doing, I cut myself off from the ability to see the part of me that's involved. Now you go back into the Aramaic thought, and the power is external. In fact, it doesn't external. include that at all. No. There's no reference to self. None whatsoever. Yeah. But, but in the Aramaic... They, that you'll, you'll notice that the powers were internal. You know, it was, the speaking was about the father within that did the work. That's where the power was. Yeah. And so we're now talking in terms of forgiveness of going within and finding the root of the energy that creates this disintegrative painful reality in me and changing it and getting rid of it. And you just can't talk about it in Greek. You know, I'd, I'd like to use a, an analogy. It'll be in, in my next book. Uh, a, a little story that I created. Let's imagine that we, we go to the jungles of South America and we're on the edge of the forest or deep in the forest and, and we see a man who has just walked 20 miles from his native home and he comes to the edge of the forest where he sees this huge yellow animal with round legs rolling back and forth and just knocking down trees left, right and center. And then another huge yellow machine comes in or animal and it, it, it puts this black surface, smooth surface, over this area that it's torn the forest out of. And this fellow, you know, I mean, over a period of weeks, he watches in amazement as this happens. <laughs> and then he hears this loud, roaring noise. And he watches this huge, shiny bird fly out of the sky, land, and it does the most amazing thing. First of all, its mouth is not on the front like every other bird he's ever seen. Its mouth is on the side. It opens its mouth and it spits out live people. And then it eats more people. And when it eats those people, it up and flies away again. Now, you and I know that we're talking about an airplane. But this fellow from deep, deep in the jungles, can he go back and say one meaningful word to his compatriots 20 miles away about what he's observed? There is nothing in the language, no language or the culture to do it. The only way he could possibly start to make sense of that would be, number one, to learn the, the paradigm that includes airplanes and what they're about, to learn a language to describe it, and then to his listeners, he has to bring them into the same paradigm before he can say anything meaningful. Now, in the Aramaic, that was talked about as having the eyes to see and the ears to hear. You remember they talked about the inner teachings. Well, they weren't available unless you had the information in brain cells already. So having information in brain cells is what was called the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Mm -hmm. Now, let's imagine that we've got someone who speaks about a power within whose nature is that of love, whose good pleasure it is to bring you everything that you want, and then you try to transfer that thought system into a thought system that has these horrific external powers. Is there a chance of telling the truth about what was said in the Aramaic? It's lost. It's just simply lost. And when you go back there, you find that it describes this energy system called life. It describes the process of forgiveness. And it describes how we anesthetize ourselves against feeling, that our unwillingness to feel. You know, when you look at the idea of pain, we've been taught in this culture, pain is this terrible, awful thing that you've got to get rid of, and you just run out and pop a pill, and then everything will be fine. But 
let's imagine, you know, cancel the image, but let's imagine that the fire alarm goes off and warns us that there's a fire happening in the building. And Mitch says, gee, well, you know, we are taping, Michael. Uh, tell you what, why don't you just hold on for a second. I got a pair of wire cutters here. I'll go cut the wires to the bell. Well, hey, everything's quiet, right? Pain's gone. Fire alarm's gone. The noise is gone. But the fire still rages somewhere. When somebody pops a pill, which is nothing but a warning signal, it's this energy system the saying... The pain is the warning signal. The pain is the warning signal. It's, hey, there's something in this system you've got to deal with. And to run out and find a way to shut off the signal does absolutely nothing to deal with the raging fire, to deal with whatever's going on in tissue that doesn't belong there. Michael, in a paragraph, you just described the nature of allopathic medicine. Yes. yes. And not that there isn't a place for that, because well, people do get into the crisis places where, gee, that's necessary, but the, the, I think the thing to understand is that there's no healing in that system. Right. What there is is symptom suppression, long-term long -term alleviation of symptoms, but when you alleviate a symptom by driving it deeper into tissue, you tend to create more degenerative conditions. And so you'll notice that the more and more they become, uh, uh, they perfect this idea of a pill is going to take care of this, the more long-term degenerative disease we have. Absolutely. Because the, the suppressive aspect drives the energy deeper into tissue, which creates deeper and deeper levels of degeneration. And even before people get to the pills, get to the things with which they suppress those symptoms, we suppress in many different ways just in our normal day-to-day -day lives. For instance, if you watch somebody in, in pain and trauma in a situation that they're, they're upset about, one of the number one things they'll do is stop breathing. The breath, you know, every energy system has a switch. When you look at this body-mind unit as an energy system, the breath is the switch for the mind energy system. And when you recognize that the breath is the, sh the switch for the mind energy system, then you recognize when you shut the breath off, you've suppressed, you've locked an energy somewhere in tissue that doesn't belong in tissue. When you start to breathe, you can then access that which you've been hiding from yourself. If breath doesn't work to suppress, then oftentimes the next mode of suppression or actually it goes a little further into anesthetizing, is hostility. Hostility is a drug. And it's a particularly difficult drug to break away from because the internal, the supplier is internal and it's free. Could you describe <laughs> what are the effects? I mean, certainly we know what the effects are emotionally for oneself as well as uh, interactively. But what happens physiologically when well, a person remains hostile? Well, first of all, you'll notice, and if you get somebody in a hostile condition and get them to quiet down, underneath the hostility there's always pain. And so the pain is the first step, and when one doesn't have a way of dealing with the pain, and this is a, a habit that starts, you know, two years, mm -hmm. and they call it the terrible twos, <laughs> two years of this age. That's why. <laughs> yeah, that when the pain isn't dealt with and it's suppressed, the mechanism of suppression oftentimes is that hostility and it creates a chemistry in the body that shuts down feelings. And so always, and, and the more hostile someone is, the more pain there is. Now you look at this culture where we have this penal system and what happens? Well, let's just take this hostile person and let's go and inflict more pain on them. That'll teach them. Like why is recidivism in the 99th percentile? 
because you just reinforce the whole cause process. We don't need a penal system. We don't need... Does that mean that we shouldn't take the murderer out of society? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But to inflict more pain on an energetic level just guarantees more of it will happen in that particular body and in the bodies left in the culture. What do you mean, Michael? <laughs> what I mean is that pain is an energy dynamic. If you take, let's say... Um, Let's look at the child abuser. What do most people want to do with the child abuser? Abuse they want them, to right? Pain. They want to abuse them. Yep. Now, start to think about that as an energy dynamic. Sure. If you have one mind engaged in abuse of a child, there's a certain energy dynamic of that. In our last show, I talked about the, uh, the high-energy waves that a 23-year senior scientist, Marcel Vogel, was able to measure coming from the mind. So if we have this person who's the abuser, and we publicized the case so highly that everybody in the culture knows about it, we just engaged how many million minds in the energy the of abuse yep. and pain. We just increased child abuse, guaranteed. Yep. Because the mind that so otherwise... molecules are being manufactured. That's right. And the, and the individual who perhaps has a propensity toward abuse but would never do it, all of a sudden the energy dynamic of that resonance drives them into what previously would not have been a behavior driving reality all of a sudden becomes one. Now let's put this guy behind bars and make sure he gets the worst punishment possible. Locking him in that little cage, he radiates an energy that will touch every potentially hostile mind or child abusing mind on the planet. And by the inflicting of pain, we create more child abuse. Now, we have someone who's an abuser, yeah, maybe they need to, you know, we need to take up a collection and remove him from the culture. But what we need to do is create oh, yeah. a space where that pain can be dealt with. <laughs> well, Please. teach one how to use tools with which to eliminate the pain that the hostility is a cover for. Sure. Otherwise, no. it's, it's, it's not only manufacturing more hostility because they are stewing in hostility inside, but the notion of them suffering at all is, a, is a, um, an expression of our collective hostility. That's correct. That's exactly it. So and before you know it, hostility becomes the generic and general uh, mode of the day. Right. Well, we have a whole uh, uh, chapter in the book on, on that idea, or several pages, mm. that address the idea of hostility, and we compare it to the alcoholic. And uh, the book is done in a conversation format with a character named Richard. And one of the most common comments we get from folks who read it is, oh, my God, I'm Richard. Or, oh, my God, I live with Richard. But one of the things he talks about is, well, you know, but, but the alcoholic, sure, the wife's got to cover for him because if she doesn't call the boss and cover for him, he's going to lose his job. It's like, well, but let's really take a look at what the cost of that is. What does it cost her over a period of a lifetime and her children and her family structure to, yeah. to enable the, uh, the alcoholic and we compare that in the book with the way the culture enables the hostility addict. I mean, how many jobs are there in the culture? Absolutely what is, right. What, half of the, the, the budget of the country goes to military? If that isn't enabling people to play the hostility game? There's no question. There's no uh, question. You know, you look at so much of the bureaucracy that's in our culture. We talk about the subject of self-empowerment a lot mm -hmm. and standing up for what one believes in one's heart and feels in one's heart. And would you address that subject of, uh, I'd like you to talk about two things. I agree with what you're saying, by the way, and I really mm -hmm. appreciate your, your articulating these points. 
two areas I'd like you to talk to, if you would. One is uh, the subject of belief system and the physiology of belief system, and the other is um, self-empowerment and what happens when people start to see the difference between actuality and their own perception of reality and start to shift that so they can become self-empowered. Right. Well, how do you deal with that? When you look at the idea that the mind selects a tiny fragment of information out of the actuality with which to produce its reality, you're looking at an evidential mind. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I live in the world of I'm right, you're wrong, it's settled, why argue? <laughs> when my mind goes to generate a reality about you... Where most people live. <laughs> right. But anyway. But when my mind goes to generate a reality about you, I can only access, because of the evidential nature of the mind, my mind will only be allowed to access data that proves you're wrong. And my mind will generate, it doesn't matter how right you are, my mind will generate a reality that proves that you're wrong because all other information will be suppressed. It's like mind. doing a global search with one word in a computer program. Precisely, yes. And you only get what's hooked to it. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm in the, I'm right, now my mind generates a reality about me. It doesn't matter how far off base I am, my mind is only allowed to access the information that proves that I'm right. And so I generate a reality that shows that I'm right. Right. And there's no discussion now because I will not allow that information into my mind. We call that blockage of truth. Most people live you mean the contrary in information. blockage of truth. The contrary information. Yes. I can't see the truth of what's going on. I can't see that I'm living in an error and I won't. My mind literally can't access the truth. So when you start to see that, then you see that the evidential nature of the mind is that it makes everything that comes up in the mind, the only information and evidence that can be accessed, is information of our own BS. Now, of course, many people listen to that word and go, what? Belief system. Not me. Oh. <laughs> belief system. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Somebody got a different reality for those initials than belief system? In our <laughs> Notice that's the reality in your mind, not the one in mine. That's the belief sure? system, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. And so we only get to see the evidence that our belief system allows to be shown to us until we correct the mind. And the way to correct the disease called blockage of truth is love of truth. That we've got to love the truth more than we do our own opinion. Mm. Now, if you look in the culture, Absolutely. the traditional is you love your own opinion and to hell with the truth. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, who cares? Right. What, what's interesting is, well, I have a reality and that's what's really important. And when we do that, we just get so far off base in life that life becomes almost unrecognizable uh, compared to the way human beings are designed to live. Absolutely. One of the questions I'll often ask people in my workshops is, um, how many remember, how many can go back, and usually it's when we were about this high, and can remember a time when you looked around at a hostile, conflict-driven world, and you said to yourself, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. Anybody <laughs> out there do that? Can you remember when you knew the world was supposed to work differently? And in the workshop, I'll, you know, of course, most people yeah. will raise their hands. And I ask, what, what is it that you remember knowing about the world? And literally 100% of the time, people's recollection is some variation on the theme of love. That they knew that's how life was supposed to work. To be. Why? Because that's the stuff we're made of, and it is the only energy that fuels the human mind properly. 
When we plug the mind into hostility or fear, anybody here ever find that you're the most creative, the most intelligent, and have the most choices when you're in a hostile state? <laughs> Good luck. Anybody find that you're your most creative, have your most choices uh, when you're in a fearful state? No. When are you most creative? When do you have the most flexibility and the most options and the most powerful choice? And when are you most self-empowered? When you're in a state of love. Because that's the only energy that fuels the human mind properly. When you unplug it, you destroy the... The mind instantly becomes dysfunctional. I like to tell a little story about the... Uh, the rose and the butterfly, let's imagine we have a rose and a butterfly and the rose and the butterfly meet and they fall in love. Let's give them each an ego. They meet and they fall in love and they have a wonderful time together. It's just grand, but one day the butterfly up and flies away. The rose, knowing that the love of the butterfly was the most important thing in its life, uproots itself to give chase. What's going to happen to the rose? It's going to die, right? Why is it going to die? It's going to die because it made something more important than being connected to its source. Whenever you or I, as human beings, mm. make anything more important than being connected to love, our source, we initiate our own death. And go back to Corinthians. With man, death began. They understood the energy dynamics of life mm. and death. We made the process of death up. And forgiveness is the way that you undo and remove those realities that destroy human physiology. You'll notice in the Aramaic that Beautiful. they didn't refer to the body as a body. They called it a temple. They knew it was an energy system. They knew it wasn't mm -hmm. a physical thing. Mm -hmm. And they knew the qualities of energy that didn't belong in it. And they knew how to forgive, how to remove the realities, the qualities of energy that didn't belong in it. And that's really the whole core of the work that we do. In our workshop uh, entitled Healing Through Relationships, we, um, we provide a, a, a kind of a roadmap to, uh, to creating a relationship in a different way than the world has taught us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's, it's on the, uh, the back of our book. Yeah. It's called My Commitment. I don't know whether you can see that or not. It, uh, Do you want to read it? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about doing exactly that. See if you could catch a glimpse of it. Uh, probably doesn't come through to... Well, I guess it's there. Sure. So My Commitment, uh, the tool we teach in Healing Through Relationships, says this. I promise to trust you enough to tell you the truth and treat you lovingly, gently, and with respect in my thoughts, my words, and my actions, whether I'm in your presence or not. In every interaction, I'll look for and acknowledge the highest and best in you as I surrender to love our true nature. Being connected to my source and nurturing my relationship with you will always be more important than any issue. If anything less than love comes up, I'll hold this in my heart and listen as we each learn to speak, experience, and be responsible for our own realities. I'll be there for and with you, keep communication open, and keep love conscious, active, and present as we heal and celebrate life. So that's one of the tools we teach in, in the book and in uh, our workshop, Healing Through Relationships. Mm, that's great. Now, if you would, just uh, tell us uh, a story or two, would you, of some of the people who have come to your classes, your workshops, and uh, what has happened? Do you have a favorite one or two that you could share? Well, probably about? one of the most recent. Uh, we had a fellow, we did a... a thing out in uh, Los Angeles um, last year and there was a fellow there who came by um, to pick up, actually he came by to pick up Jim Redfield's book. Uh, if you've read Celestine Prophecy, mm -hmm. you might remember in the front of Celestine Prophecy, Jim acknowledges uh, why is this happening to me again and myself. Uh, and 
he came by. We had uh, Jim's book on our table, and it was packaged with Why Is This Happening to Me Again? Mm -hmm. And so uh, he picked our book up, too, and sent us a copy of a letter that he had sent to his psychiatrist along with a copy of the book. And in the letter, he talked about how he'd been you know, seeing this psychiatrist for 35 years, two to four times a week, and that if he had had the tools in this book, and that's all he had was just the book, if he had the tools in the book 35 years ago, he wouldn't have had to go through that 35 years of trauma. And he speaks in a letter about his anguish and his hatred and such that, uh, oh. that just totally destroyed himself and, and didn't realize that it all was a reality in his own mind that he could do away with, with forgiveness. And so it's um, pretty transforming to watch that sort of thing happen. Sure. The, uh, sure. the commitment will oftentimes uh, have people who will contact us. We get a, a lot of invitations to weddings uh, because people will yeah. use the relationship commitment as their wedding vows. And so we get to hear a lot of stories of people in trauma and turmoil who come across that uh, information and healing through relationships and start to use the commitment as a set of tools, as a, a roadmap for achieving a different form of relationship. And we'll see people who, gee, they're either in process of divorce or on the verge of divorce who actually start to use those tools. And, and we'll hear from them, God, we're back on our second honeymoon. You know, it's just yeah. like... We forgot why How we got together. The, yeah. the, the painful yeah. realities that are triggered in relationship, and, and there's yeah. a reason for that because yeah. when we're drawn to someone in relationship, we're drawn to the person who knows how to show us what we need to deal with. The purpose of relationship is that of a sacrament, and a sacrament isn't something religious. A sacrament is that which is given to us designed to take us back to our true nature, which is love. Which means that everything in us that's less than love has to come to the surface. But if we're playing that game of denial, projection, and externalization, when it comes to the surface, we don't see that this is true about us. We see that it's true about them. And a, a key thought to, to tap into there is that every reality output from the mind always tells more about the content of the mind than it does about the world we think we're observing. It always tells us more about us. Absolutely. And it's our opportunity to start to clean up the internal process that if we don't clean it up, ends up being our physiological disease. It ends up and being our, our body environment chemistry. Yes. Well, and yes. our external environment. Yes. Which reminds me, in closing, I just want to share this wonderful thought uh, phrase that you uh, put in mind here, which is, love attracts everything unlike itself. Mm -hmm. And so when we are in relationship, we find ourselves facing all those parts that are, in a sense, below love, not quite up to love, so that we can bring the whole system right. up to love. Precisely, yeah. If we decide, okay, well, I want to embody this higher ideal, everything unlike the ideal has to float to the surface to Absolutely. be healed, has to be cleaned out. Absolutely. There's a poem that we, uh, we uh, gonna have, have to in here real quickly. really fast. <laughs> really it's called fast. Each Moment. Each moment of love, each moment of giving, each moment of joy is a moment of living. Each moment of anger, each moment of lying, each moment of resentment is a moment of dying. All our moments add together, like the digits in a sum, and the answer tells us plainly whether our life or our death shall come. Kind of sums the whole thing up in a nutshell. It really does. Thank you so much. Delighted. Mike. It's been a pleasure. Very good. Great. Thank Thanks you. again. Blessings. Absolutely. All right. It's Mitchell Raven for A Better World.